Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, Robin Lane Fox, a classicist, ancient historian, and also green-fingered garden writer, discusses his most recent book, Homer and His Iliad. The Iliad, an epic poem written by ancient Greek poet Homer, has been a constant source of inspiration and reinterpretation for historians and writers over the centuries. Joining Robin Lane Fox to discuss it today is classicist and author Daisy Dunn. Now let's join Daisy Dunn and Robin Lane Fox in conversation. Hello and welcome. I'm delighted to be joined by Robin Lane Fox today. Robin is an acclaimed classicist and ancient historian. He taught ancient history at Oxford from 1977 to 2014 and is now Emeritus Fellow of New College, Oxford. He is author of an almost impossible number of books, including Pagans and Christians, the unauthorised version, and many works of classical history, all of which have been widely translated, including Alexander the Great, which was Oliver Stone's main guide when creating his film of 2004, a wonderful, all-encompassing history working back from Hadrian called The Classical World, Travelling Heroes and Augustine Conversions to Confessions, for which he was awarded the Wolfson Prize for History. Since 1970, he has also been the gardening correspondent of the FT, and this is something he puts to valiant use in his major new book, Homer and His Iliad, which will be the focus of our discussion today. Robin, welcome. Oh, welcome to you. Thank you very much. Well, your your new book is is excellent. Um, it really is a, a sort of a, a book in in two parts. It's a a beautiful lyrical appreciation of the Iliad, but also a thrilling exposition of of a theory about how it was composed. By which we really mean who was Homer. <laughs> um, if we knew, I wouldn't have to write the book. <laughs> it's a, a perpetual question and. What I can do is investigate probabilities. Um, of course, we don't know the answer. But sort of in the the course of coming to it, I mean, presumably you've been reading this work for a long time. In fact, in your book, you actually reference one of your very inspiring schoolmasters. So I wonder if we can sort of work sort of towards the question of whom who whom who Homer was uh, through your own experience, and sort of look maybe a little about how your how you're really. Your early engagement with the poem shaped how you look at it today. Uh, well, I'm so lucky it goes back to my school days. Um, unlike other Etonian scholars of the time, we would be taken through the poem uh, by our great classical teacher, uh, Richard Martineau, a commanding figure who would simply translate, uh, improvised, the Greek in front of him whilst we followed the Greek. And this gave us a wonderful sense of the flow of the poem and we went the whole way through it with very few cuts. Um, that wasn't the first time I had encountered it. Earlier in the school, we'd been obliged to translate in our own time and then take tests on particular books. Um, and before that, we'd actually studied, thank heavens, book six, one of the great masterpieces of the poem. 
Uh, we'd read book 22 and 24, but it was the experience of the poem being read right through, which I then repeated myself um, at Eton College, which really first uh, explained to me uh, the scope, the range, and the power of this extraordinary work. And then, of course, I came on to Oxford, where the study was much more scholarly, and as far as I was concerned, much duller and much more boring. Um, and I never really uh, learned so much from the then approach in Oxford, which was more how far home is, is a debt to my senior, um, and whether we could hack up him into little people and those several little poets at once. Uh, not the view of my great tutor at the time, I have to say. Um, and it wasn't really until I started teaching in 1973, I began by teaching the Iliad, that I too had to uh, have a formulated view and a commitment that I could get across to the wonderful pupils I had at the time. Um, so it's been a very long part of my life, uh, and it's my constant companion. And I set out for two things, to try to give some idea of how Homer probably composed when he did so. Um, again, I have various reasons for where I date him, and above all, for a simple question, why does it make me cry? And I think you, you come to all of those points in a really sort of lucid way in your book, and you sort of weave this together into a really seamless uh, narrative. I wonder, you mentioned Oxford there and sort of not gaining as much enjoyment as a student of reading it. I mean, in terms of, sort of Oxford academia and, and teaching there, is there an expectation in the world of Oxford academia that once you've reached a certain stage in your career, then you're, you're ripe to take Homer on, so to speak? Or, or is there pressure to the contrary? Is there a feeling that writing the sort of book that you have carries a major risk to your scholarly reputation? Well, I greatly respect my Oxford colleagues, and I'm sure none of them would have read the book. Uh, they don't need to. They have their own views, um, and I'm sure they would have some of them have same views, some of them different ones. Um, everything's changing. What you used to do was begin by reading Homer's Iliad right through. In Greek, you arrived from school and you were expected to do that. Uh, there was much less discussion of um, uh, appreciation as to why it was so uh, powerful and the emotion behind it. Uh, was more an analytic approach, what we know about the origins of the alphabet at the time, what can we know about Mycenae, and then there was much discussion of something called the combative uh, virtues and the whole combative ethic of the Homeric hero, making them seem really one-sided, I thought, um, not so much ability to cooperate uh, and to be combative. Um, but nobody until 1973, with the great lectures of Jasper Griffin, in Balliol College, a formative influence on so many of us, uh, did anyone actually say, why is this poem so marvellous? Um, so it was rather a dark age when I, I was studying it. Of course, the great experts knew the poem through and through, but it wasn't uh, something you would explain why it affected you so profoundly. Um, it was much more impersonal. I mean, Jasper Griffin's book, was it Homer on Life and Death? That really inspired me as well. And that's really sort of um, stood the test of time, I think. And I mean, I hope your book will similarly and sort of, uh, I guess, in, in its approach, a similar type of book and one that will inspire interest in the poem as a text, as you say, it's to bring out the sort of personal reaction more so than other books. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, I'm pleased to say I have amazingly had some emails from people who said, yes, I'm now taking classes in Homeric Greek. This is completely wonderful. 
Uh, I mean, language is such fun. Uh, there is a, uh, a contrary view that you know, it's beyond us all now and we can't possibly engage with this. We just read a translation. This is absolutely terrible. Um, the whole flow of the poetry, the Homeric Greek, you buy a Homeric dictionary, which only has the words in Homer, and after a while, you'll find, as I did, heavens alive, we were aged 13, 14, that the poem flows for you, and the whole sections you can read really very quickly. If you try to analyze every single word, of course, you are in very deep water indeed. What does the tiny Homeric particle per, three letters, what does it mean? <laughs> very difficult to be sure. And if you try to render every small particle, um, you really will struggle. That's part of Homer's genius. But it's accessible. And I honestly think within two years, people could be reading Homer through for themselves. And that is a transformative experience in life, something that's never left me. And is there a book you'd recommend people begin with reading in Greek? Would would you say they should read book one first and work through, or should they begin with book 22? Well, come on. I mean, book one, I hope I explain in the book. Book one is one of the miracles of the human mind. Um, there are about another 10 books of the 24 that are equal miracles. I know every time I read book one, which is a very many times, I still see new things and I shut it as it's book one to us, but not to Homer, of course. He didn't divide it into books. And I just think, how on earth could people do it? And this is something I'd really like to emphasize. This poem, I would say, was composed largely by one person in 740 to 30 BC. Others might say 720. A rearguard action might try to sustain, I think, the impossible view for 680, and some people would say it was evolving down to 520. I discount them, though I engage with their theories. We are on the edge of what is called a dark age. Look, this is nearly 2,750 years ago, nearly 2,800 years ago. But think of the audience, their reactions, and what Homer could trade on when performing to them. They are so alert in human terms. It's so powerful. If you just look at their archaeological remains, it looks pretty miserable. You can be enthusiastic. I am sometimes about geometric pottery. But this is an amazing era of the song, the word, uh, the performed poem, something we've completely lost. Um, they are light years beyond us. I hope one moral of the book is held a candle to the dark ages. And I've come to think, really, it's we who are living in the Dark Ages. We can't do this anymore. Um, you've only got to look at, um, at contemporary attempts. Could you write an epic? People try. Uh, could you perform an epic without writing? You certainly couldn't. Um, very few areas of the world can still do it. We've lost the art. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. As you say in your your book, it's sort of uh, beyond us in many ways. It's in a league of its own, Homer's poem. I want to go back to what you were just saying about Homer, in your view, being an individual, because that really is a theory that's going against the grain of centuries of scholarship, isn't it? Um, Going against the grain of some scholarship, yes. Uh, There is a view, of course, that the poem was uh, evolved and was stitched together by sequences of performers, uh, and is really owed to something called tradition. Uh, there are many good reasons why people have held this view. Uh, they felt there were contradictions in the poem. You could see that it had been stitched into separate little pieces. I don't see any of this. I see the opposite. Uh, I see a unity um, for various reasons I set out in the book. Um, <clears throat> no, I think there is one Homer behind everything except book 10, if you're reading it, and possibly the catalogue, I think, also is inserted in book two. Um, and uh, people started by believing that there was perhaps a shorter, concentrated poem onto which extra bits were tacked. Either it evolved um, with extra little bits being tacked onto a core, or the whole thing was evolving as a rolling snowball through tradition. Uh, this became uh, a strong view, um, partly in Germany, and also then it was a force by one type of fieldwork uh, by the great Norman Parry, for instance, well-known figure in American scholarship, quite rightly, who went off to Bosnia and Yugoslavia in, in the 1930s to listen to orally composed poetry there. He had realized that the poems probably were composed in performance. And uh, Parry was a philologist. He'd been trained in uh, language of tradition, linguistic tradition, as if there was no individuality in the way the poem was uh, evolving. And his marvellous studies of Bosnian poetry, very, very important, have fueled a long study at a high level in Harvard. And of course, as keepers of the, the Parry archive, they work in that tradition as if the Iliad has emerged from a long evolving tradition over 250 years. And I think I would say in my book, rubbish. I'm sure they'll say the opposite to me, but I still stand firm till we have one mind following through a plot which is carefully signposted inch by inch, more is revealed on the way through. 
and there is a unity to it that I do not believe is sustainable by a long evolution. And if it had evolved over a long period of time, the coherent um, uh, level of uh, background and historical context we can apply to the similes, the comparisons, which are the poet's own work, would be so different because the world in 550 BC, as you well know, is very different from the world in 750 BC. There's no hint of these later changes in the most personal part, I would stress this, of the poem, the similes, the comparisons, which are themselves almost an entire book if you put them end to end, that the poet uses to make clear or more powerful or add pathos to the narrative he's giving. It belongs in a coherent earlier time than uh, you would have to believe if you thought the poem was composed in 500. That would be one of my arguments. It's by no means my only one. I don't think myself, it's very hard to gauge, that scholarly opinion at the moment rallies outside perhaps Harvard and parts of America, got perfectly coherent views, um, to the idea of a long, slow, evolving Iliad. I don't think that that is the dominant trend. But it's so hard to know. <laughs> you hold your finger up as a scholar and try to test the general atmosphere. You probably get it slightly wrong. Um, I hope that's not unjust. I think one of the, the things I really enjoyed in your book was your your use of, sort of evidence from the natural world to support this theory of Homer being an individual, someone who was aware of the world around him, someone who was bringing aspects of nature, talking about similes of descriptions of, of children stirring up wasp nests or particularly descriptions of certain flora and fauna which are found in the part of the world that you believe Homer came from. Could you talk a little bit about, about that and perhaps how some of your horticultural expertise came to play? Um, with pleasure, of course. Uh, the first thing I must say, a very important point, Homer had no idea of the natural world. The idea of nature as a separate uh, sphere with its own laws and rules and rationality, really only emerges in Greek thought in the what, 6th century BC, later 6th century BC, 200 years later. So he doesn't have an idea of nature with a capital N. But uh, the point that strikes me is the, the exactness of so much of his observation. Now, how do we know it's his observation? Of course, the poem is uh, 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 broken up with traditional passages of uh, eating and drinking, um, launching a ship, and so on. You couldn't possibly say, therefore, that Homer was an expert in cooking. That would be ridiculous. But look at the similes where he chooses what to compare as when, uh, just as the leaves are, are generations of leaves on the trees, so the generations of men, very famous, the, uh, the woods are put out the leaves and they, they die away in autumn, so one generation succeeds another. That's a very simple example. Now, when you look at them, there are remarkably sharp observations, which are, in our natural terms, exact. Um, it may be uh, the falling sideways head of the flower on a poppy. Now, I know this. I've seen it uh, in the rain. People haven't always understood it. And Homer compares Gorgithion's head, uh, sadly, as it stumps to one side when he's killed, to the movement, think of this, of the flower of a poppy, admittedly heavy with seed in the rain. It's a fragile moment. Um, you have to be very, very sharp to see that. And I also 
um, insist that the famous similes of lion hunts, which many have thought are echoes of a distant Mycenaean past, I should explain, that's 400 years before Homer, the world of Mycenae uh, and Pylos and all the sites you can visit in Greece, and that they've got no um, first-hand knowledge of lions. But I really don't believe this. I uh, looked at it very closely. There are points in the lion similes which show an exact knowledge of the wrinkling of a lion's brow or the way that a lion will pounce and break its prey on the, on the back of its neck, the particular type of hounds involved. This is very, very different from anything we can see in Mycenaean art um, of the nature of lion hunting. And there were lions um, in Asia Minor, where Homer almost certainly uh, lived for a while and performed. And people actually went and saw this particular type of hunting. Lions would come and attack their flocks, and they would um, uh, attack their homesteads at night. Um, sometimes they'd be out hunting other animals, and they'd put up a lion. Homer understands all this exactly. Um, now, he could have understood it from hearsay. But I do ask a simple question, what did Homer do all day? Um, we have you know, no idea. He's not an aristocrat. He's obviously a highly, highly practiced oral performer. How does he fit in his time? Well, I don't know. One thing he might have done, why not, as a young man, gone out and hunted the land and seen this. It's perfectly possible. It's the exactness in the similes, which are very specific often, um, and he gets it right. And they are choices by him. They're the parts of the poem that are the least traditional in their phrase and language. So my, my advice would be, look at the similes. Now, of course, I know very well, what do I love in life? I love gardening. Um, I've loved hunting. I've loved riding. So all of these things are very dear to me. They come home to me. I'm not for one moment saying <laughs> that Homer is therefore like me. I couldn't begin to write a line examiner poetry if I tried, let alone compose one for you orally now straight off on the program. I wish I could. I might have been able to do it when I was 16. Um, I'm just saying that if you look at it with an eye that's alert to this, as mine is, you suddenly see, my God, he really knows. Um, also, his knowledge of horses, too. I'm not alone in thinking this. Uh, he's noticed very, very small details of horses' sweat uh, and the horses' foreheads and so on. Again, he's familiar. Of course, he is. There are animals around him. But he really knows and he has this wonderfully precise, in my view, exact eye, which is part of the poem's extraordinary power, amongst the world of the recurring generalized epithets. Uh, the wine is always honey sweet, the dawn is saffron cloaked. Everything you feel is for the best as you read the epithets. Nothing is to, uh, diminishes. There are none of these adjectives diminishes what it's attached to. The world sounds wonderful. That's so brilliant because at the same time, what's going on is so poignant and often so awful. This amazing contrast between um, the generalized world, all for the best, and the exactly observed world, which is so often all for the worst, um, is part of the secret of the poem. So we, we have this young poet who might be interested in hunting. He's living, we think, in, sort of in modern times, Western Turkey or the Eastern Aegean. And I guess the, the, the key thing to say is in, that he's illiterate as well. That's important to, to stress, isn't it? Well, um, I think so. I think uh, you know, I'm not alone by any means in this view. I don't believe Homer could read or write. That's well worth remembering. I've said before that um, he'd be thrown out of primary school. 
He's far too clever for all of that. He doesn't need it. He's trained, I'd emphasize this, from comparative evidence. I should think he began forming poetic phrases at the age of four or five. Perhaps his father taught him from comparative evidence where this uh, art is still practiced elsewhere in the world. Um, he's rehearsed and he's rehearsed and he's rehearsed. But one point I really stress, Homer did not memorize. Um, it's not that he somehow has memorized a version and is standing up like a great actor like Mark Rylance in front of the National Theatre and is memorizing and performing. He is um, performing and composing as he goes along. I think he, it is an illiterate uh, performance. Then the question comes, how do we have it? Uh, or how do we have the one we have? That's a separate area we'll get into. But for me and for some others, Homer is not able to read. He's not able to write. He's performing on the turn when alphabetic writing is spreading in Greece, but it is not his skill. He did not go over the poem and revise it. If he had done, or one or two famous uh, inconsistencies, oddities, he would certainly have taken out. I don't think so. Um, so I see him from an early age, by the age of 10, he's probably quite adept, practicing, practicing, practicing. I give the analogy of a pianist. There are superb pianists who could never read music. They're rather good analogy. But they can sit down and think of, for instance, the great Errol Garner, who said not to have read music. Unbelievable that he could just improvise and perform so brilliantly. Um, and I've said of Homer, we're still buying the sheet music. Um, but Homer did not have it himself. Um, that is what is so remarkable about it. And he, and he suggests in your book that he might have given his first public performance, at least, at a religious festival. Could you explain a little about what led you to that idea? Uh, it's, it's not an original idea that he performs at a festival. The poem as we have it is not focused on any one patron or on any one particular uh, cult of a god. It's not in praise initially of, say, Apollo, although there is a compliment uh, right near the end of uh, book 20. Uh, one or to the um, the family who claimed descent from Aeneas. I mean, come on, they are not the patrons of the poem. They've had to sit for hours and hours and hours without a mention of them. So what kind of a setting can we imagine? It isn't some city-state. It isn't a noble family, which would be flattered at length, of course. Um, it's not that. Uh, and it's been a very popular view, even I think in antiquity, but certainly in modern scholarship that the poem as we have it had taken this amazing shape for a festival at which there would be um, contests of poets and there would be performance of poetry. But then you face a problem. A poem is so long. So in my view, Homer was known to be a brilliant poetic performer. People had heard the parts of it and were amazed by it and said to him, look, we'll give you all the poetic space in, say, a three-day festival, and you can perform in the whole run-through for us. And the poem grew to take account of that setting. I find it very difficult to think that it was per uh, performed at this length for, let's say, a banquet in some nobleman's hall, what we think of for Anglo-Saxon or early uh, Germanic poetry. 
They'd had to have sat for days on days on hard chairs. There would have been some kind of compliment, uh, quite frequent, I should think, to the patrons concerned. It doesn't have that feel at all. Um, so I'm certainly in favor of a festival, and that is quite a widespread view among scholars. I have suggested something which perhaps has not been suggested before, so I doubt anyone will ever believe it. Might Homer have first started performing whilst out on a campaign with an army and troops? Now, we know that his great admirer, Alexander the Great, took poets with him into his march in Asia, and they performed uh, there. Might Homer have done the same on one of the expeditions of Ionian cities to attack each other or whatever they may have done? Um, and at the end, he may have performed part of this war poem to them, and they were transfixed by it. And they may have said, go on, Homer, um, why don't you expand it a bit? We'll have it give you a, a space at a festival. And it was a huge success, so he had another one and made another poem. My point, though, would be we do not have the exact performance that Homer gave at a festival because nobody could have memorized it just listening to him. That's not humanly possible. And nobody could have been taking it down very, very quickly as he performed at full speed with gestures of the hands and so forth. So I think, and again, I'm not alone in this, but it's been recently a more minority view, that Homer then decided or was prevailed upon to dictate his poem in a version that would last. And behind it, there is some literate early alphabetic team of or individual scribes. We don't know their names. I think they're possibly members of Homer's family. They might have been slaves. Uh, I like to think, of course, one of them might have been his daughter. I have a very digital daughter. That would be rather lovely. We can't know. Uh, the ancients had various views about his daughter. They said that Homer gave her one of the poems um, as her diary so she could get married. So they, they were prepared to imagine this. Um, and it is a dictated version that we have. Now, you may well say, oh, for heaven's sake, I can't imagine a scribe taking this down in dictation. But importantly, it's been done, not just by Milman Parry, but something that struck me very strongly by the great epic, uh, heroic poems in Central Asia. I went in 2016 uh, to Kyrgyzstan in uh, Central Asia on horseback and became aware of their education in the heroic tales of the hero Manas and the presence of Manas singers who perform this epic without any text. They vary it in every performance. So I went back into the history of this and I was very pleased that when I was younger, we were made to read a rather remarkable dense book by the great Maurice Bauer, Daisy, one of your subjects. Um, and um, Bauer, who read Russian, had been quick to see that there was a potential analogy for Homer in this orally performed epic in Central Asia. Uh, and Bauer could read it I can't, I can't, uh, in, in his Russian transcription. So I went into it, and amazingly, uh, Russian scholar, Russian speaking scholars had gone out into Central Asia in the 1850s and 60s. And even though they hardly understood the Turkic dialect in which these uh, singers performed, they took down three, four thousand lines in a row of um, dictated 
orally performed text from illiterate singers. So, if they could do it, how easy for Greeks in their own language to take down Homer on the assumption, a big assumption, that alphabetic writing is a familiar technique. And this is something, again, I, I, I go into, I hope with an uh, accurate account of the recent genuine evidence uh, for an early introduction of the alphabet. I would say with others, we, we probably have alphabetic writing by 780, 770 BC now. But I do think that once we have it, though we see so few traces surviving on all we've got, which is hard stone or bits of durable pottery, it became a technique like, say, uh, computing or typing or using the internet, except for me, very slow with both, um, which people uh, could spread and master very quickly. Homer wasn't one of those persons, but there were people around to do it. And the point that I think I, I stress is there was a reason for Homer to do this. People have always said, well, why would he? He had no idea of a fixed text. But very simply, there was profit in it. He was going to die. If somebody was the guardian of the great poem, they could then uh, lease it out or perform uh, for uh, rewards um, the version that was Homer's version. This would be intensely valuable. Probably members of his family. We later hear of the Homerids. Now, there are analogies in early Greek uh, techniques and technology. Medicine, uh, the art of scribal writing, for these skills to be transmitted in families. We don't know if Homer was married. I'd love to meet Mrs. Homer. My God, <laughs> that would be truly fascinating. Um, we don't know he had children, but I'm sure he had dependents and relations. Uh, and if they had his dictated text, they had a living. Well, I can tell you, you know, it's a basic thing in humankind. How are my children going to keep alive? Um, and this was a very sensible decision. So he wanted to dictate. He wasn't doing it under duress, like all the people who Melman Parry had to record. And he had, I think, uh, a group of people, perhaps his sons and daughters, who could write very, very quickly. Same way as they're incredibly useful to me with apps and I have mobile phones. I can't do any of this. Um, and they're so fast, they've made millions of pounds out of it. Well done, then. Um, Homer, too, had a, a more digitally competent alphabetically competent um, younger generation, and he dictated it to them. And that's the version we have. But there is, of course, something immensely poignant. There are hundreds, or well, not hundreds, there may be dozens of other performances which we don't have. Were they better? Well, Daisy, you can't ask me because I think nothing could be better in any serious sense than the version we have. It's, it's superb. Uh, there are moments, if you disbelieve me, read the last three books, when I have to say it's sustained perfection. And what's a relief we have it. I mean, I guess in a sense, Homer was perhaps aspiring to the same sort of immortal reputation. He used the word kleos of the heroes in his poems. They, they live on beyond their mortal span. Homer actually achieved that by being written down so that we can still speak of him today. And I, I wonder, you sort of uh, toyed with the idea of Homer having this wonderful family with a, a wife and sort of a perhaps a, a daughter as well. I mean, the idea of Homer himself actually being a her has actually been suggested historically. We had uh, Samuel Butler and then Robert Graves believing that the Odyssey, at least, was written by a woman. Is there any possibility 
that Homer could have been female, do you think? Um, you can't exclude any possibility, and I think nobody believes this one. On the grounds that we do have identities for other uh, writers of epic poetry in Greece, nobody ever suggests uh, that there really was a woman who could do it. Um, I would hesitate, of course, to say that we would expect more of a feminine point of view or a feminine sensitivity, because that is itself culturally variable, even if you believe in it. Um, so I think I don't believe uh, that um, Homer was a woman, no. Um, we don't know. We, we have no idea of Homer's concubines, Homer's lovers. Who were they? I long to know. It's one of those one, great mysteries. One of the, the delights of your book, I think, all the same, you know, Homer might not have been a woman, but you focus quite heavily on the women in the poem. I think you, you count seven in particular who speak. It's probably more than actually many of us would have actually noticed while, while reading for the first time. Um, what, do you think it, what, what is the significance of these female characters? To the, oh, well, oh, it's an important point. <clears throat> they are marginal to the plot. The plot is uh, obviously a, a quarrel over a captive woman, but she has no agency in the matter. Uh, she is uh, being a noble girl who was married and then enslaved. So the women don't affect directly the actual plot in the poem, but they are, of course, an enormously important presence. They enhance the tremendous pathos on the Trojan side and the, uh, the heart-rending scenes of the loss that will be involved um, if the great hero Hector dies, for instance, with the marvellous um, uh, encounter between himself and Andromache before he goes out to war, his wife with their young baby, one of the most, probably the most sublime poetry ever written. Uh, and again, um, the constant um, uh, switches to Helen, who is... Um, uh, uh, hating herself for the fact that she eloped with Paris, by whom she's largely fed up. Um, absolutely wonderful. She wishes she could have died. She wishes she hadn't made this mistake. And yet, when she sees him, she can't resist him, egged on, of course, by Aphrodite. And then at the end of the poem, the last uh, books 22 and 24, the women again, so important for the poignancy, the terrible pathos. And in Andromache's case, a touch of irony. I mean, imagine this. Great Hector is fallen and is killed in the duel by Achilles, um, unforgettably. And at that moment, then the lesser Trojans come out and they see the great body of Hector lying there and they stab him then dead with their spears and make comments about it. So true to life, when the great one is down, then only then do the little ones come out and stab him. And Andromache is back in the city of Troy. And though she knows in her heart since book six that she'll never see him again, and she started a lament for him in their own household, she is warming or seeing to the warming of the water for her husband's bath if he returns from uh, the battle. That's how we see her. So poignant and ironic she doesn't know. But then she hears a terrible cry going up from the plane. And she rushes out and she knows without anyone telling her. I'm sorry. It's, it's terribly upsetting. It's probably upsetting to you. It's very upsetting to me still. And then um, it's dreadful. And she faints and then she has a great lament over what it means. And at the end of the poem, um, the body of Hector in these amazing scenes has been brought back 
by his elderly father, King Priam. Uh, stunning, absolutely shattering um, encounter with Achilles. And when it comes back into the city, then the three women, um, Hecuba, um, Helen, and Andromache, uh, lament over him, as Greek women always lament. And they further bring out the terrible pathos and poignancy of what will happen, what it means for them as individuals. And we see the loss of war through women's eyes. Now, this is really typically Greek. Um, you might contrast, uh, for instance, the Bible, um, uh, the, uh, the, the song um, uh, 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 about the triumph of jail, of, of Cicero and jail and all of that. Um, and um, they gloat at the fact that the women will be looking out of the windows, waiting for the men to return who will never return. There's an element of gloating in a victory song. How different Homer is. We see through the wives and mothers of the city of Troy, the Greeks, what you might call his own group, again to sack, the terrible suffering that will be involved. And this is a formative influence. Um, the Greek tragedians pick this up. And their great plays, many of them, what are they? They're about the women on the other side. Um, Euripides is Trojan women. Uh, Euripides is Phoenician women, um, and so on. Uh, really, really important um, ability of Greeks to empathize with the enemy and bring it out in the through the female's role. So they seriously enhance pathos, which is so powerful, mm. and with it, the accompanying emotion of pity. Alexander Pope is excellent in many ways. Um, the translation is, can be rather uh, uh, formal and uh, highfalutin, but he understood so well the role of pity in the poem. Um, the gods pity humans briefly. And the mortals, mm -hmm. persistent pity expressed between the various characters. It's a, it's a dominant thing. And of course, the women shut off um, in extreme. So yes, they, they, they're a very important foil to the action. They are not the main drivers of the plot as we see it. Of course, Helen has caused it. I mean, this is clearly, it's a profoundly moving poem and it's one that you need to, to read in, in Greek, as you've said, to, to really feel on that level. You mentioned Alexander Pope as one of the translators of the poem. Do you have a preference for a more up-to-date, a more modern translation? And what do you think, for example, of uh, the Emily Wilson translation, which a lot of people are talking about at the moment? Ah, uh, right. Well, fortunately, a lot of effort by me, a lot of money spent on me. I have a, a primary need for translations. And I would say uh, to modern readers, look for Richmond Latimore. I think this would be a widely uh, um, agreed choice. Excellent translation. Uh, Peter Green uh, also in 2015 was very good. And if you want just a prose account, um, those were uh, translations into verse. If you want a prose account, go straight for the Penguin Modern Classic nowadays by Martin Hammond, a lifelong expert in Greek. Um, and it's, it's quite fluent and it rolls along. Or there is um, uh, Adam Verity in the Oxford World Classics. So many, many translations. I've hardly done more than skim Emily Wilson. She's made um, deliberate choices, uh, carefully thought, and she's a great lover of the poem and showing fantastic energy, for heaven's sake. She's performing it or exclaiming it, declaiming it in a loud voice anywhere from Athens to Chicago. And she really loves it. Um, 
a pupil of Jasper Griffin, who first, I think, uh, awoke her to the full range and scope of the poem. Uh, it's not one for me, no. It wouldn't be in my top five. And I think actually many classicists would say the same. So go for Lattimore or go for one of the prose translations. Emily would be the first to say she's not a poet, um, but I think that shows in the, in the translation. And the level of style she's chosen is uh, more everyday and colloquial to keep it moving. And that, I think, is a fundamental error. Uh, it's very, very difficult. But Homer's language, we know, is a blend of dialects and different periods which was never, ever close to the spoken language. So his first hearers, those wonderful audiences of the Dark Ages, would God, we still had them in the West End, um, they were entering into a language which was not every day at all. And they entered into it and they loved it for that. And the poem had that dimension for them. So if you're going to translate it, as Emily has chosen, as a version for our times, which means eliminating the repeated epithets and occasionally using, to my mind, rather more colloquial language like uh, get off, go away, sleazy flirt, or whatever it may be. You keep the poem moving, so I see what she was doing. But what you're reading, I think, is the Emiliad. You're not reading the Iliad at all. It's interesting. Um, well, I, I hope that readers will come to your book. Um, who Readers who maybe will know the poem already, and readers who won't know the poem at all, um, because I think what you do so well is to approach individual passages. I mean, I was reminded of the exercise of being a student instead of writing gobbets or commentaries on, on bits. And obviously you do it far better than any any student could have done uh, in my time. But I, I, I love that sort of intense focus so that you actually feel Homer in sort of individual portions as well as the whole. So I hope readers will, will come to your book um, for that and also for for your theory and sort of exposition of, of who Homer was and sort of really... You're really, really subtle, but moving uh, evocation of, of the world of Homer and the poem. So thank you, Robin Maynard. I'd like to end by saying one inarguable thing. Homer was a genius. Um, I think he is the first author of a real epic, not a heroic poem. He is the divisor of a concentrated plot with really four main days of fighting. In the poem, it's hardly believable. We have the world's first awareness of moving pictures, the scenes on Achilles' shield. We meet with the god Hephaestus, the world's first robots, the world's first artificial intelligence. They can speak um, and, and act, even though they are not human. Um, absolutely amazing inventions. He's invented the movies, he's invented robots, he's invented AI, he's invented a plot, he's invented the whole genre of an epic. Um, this isn't done by a railing tradition over 250 years. This person was a genius, and he has shaped my life, changed the way I see the world. So please, everybody, if you have read the Iliad through in Greek, you have not lived in vain. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Daisy, very much to your very, very uh, loyal reader, and um, that means a lot to an author. We sit there writing away hours on end, never knowing who'll look at it. I never dreamt I would be on uh, an Intelligence Squared Zoom discussing my, my night-by-night thoughts over three years or maybe 60 years. But so it's not been. Oh, it's been fantastic. I've enjoyed every moment, so thank you. 
Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.